Hi, I'm BJ, and this is the Arcane Alienist Podcast. It's day 24 of RPG A Day 2021, and today's topic is Translate. So I will get to that after we get through today's calls. ABJ hey, is Joe. To answer your romance question, in my games, it is almost exclusively PCs hooking up with NPCs. Uh, two of my players are married to each other, so they're certainly not going to have their PCs date. But yeah, I tend to throw a pretty steady stream of sexy NPCs at my players to see what sticks. <laughs> Sometimes they'll get annoyed with me because they'll their character will get involved with an NPC and a very loving relationship and then they'll travel off their characters will travel off to a new location and lo and behold there are super sexy people there too and then there are awesome discussions about the usefulness of monogamy but dude it is absolutely not for every group i'm just lucky enough to uh to have a group that gets into that kind of stuff because it it cracks me up and those are some of our most fun sessions but yeah uh date night was awesome head to table is hilarious check it out and have a good one. Hey, thanks for providing a little more information on the way you handle romance in your, your campaigns, Joe. I, I think that's pretty funny that you've got a couple who are married that do not want their characters uh, intermingled inter- with one another romantically in, in the game. That's My wife has maybe a couple times only thought about playing, but I, she, I don't think she's ever going to. She always backs out. So, um, But I, I think... We would probably not want our characters hitched in the game if we, we were to play together as players. Um, so, yeah, that was Joe Richter from the Hindsightless Podcast. And uh, he'll have another call-in coming up in a minute. But first, we got a call from Jason of Nerds RPG Variety Cast. Hey, BJ, Jason here. So as far as having sidekicks or pets for your characters, especially for the kids' game, I actually prefer the original sidekick rules for 5e that were in Unearthed Arcana. If you just Google 5e sidekicks, it pops right up. The original rules would let you pick any creature that was CR1 or lower, and it gives rules to advance them up through 20th level. So it opened up a really wide variety of options for those, you know, for them to have pets effectively, and gave rules to, you know, level them up and but you could have all kinds of magical creatures and whatnot as your pets, which is pretty cool. And I think something, you know, your younger players probably would appreciate quite a bit. Hey, Jason. Yeah, they, they, uh, the sidekick rules, I remember them in Unearthed Arcana, and then they had a shorter version of them in the new Essentials kit, uh, which kind of limits the level because it's for just lower-level play. But then they put the full progression i believe back in tosh's cauldron of everything so that you have you have the full progression again and you can choose basically any kind of creature uh you know an animal a, a fae a, a fairy a, a demon a whatever as long as it's it's one hit die or less um and so that that they open those back up for, with the full rules in tosh's cauldron of everything and you know the the rules are so because they're, it's supposed to be that you know, a fifth level sidekick is a fifth level character and it can function as a fifth level character. It's not as interesting or as flashy or as diverse or, or um, 
it doesn't have the, the wide array of abilities that a full player character would, but it should hold its own in, in an encounter. And I, some people have even discussed just playing a game where everybody is a sidekick, just pick a one-hit die creature from the monster manual for the base, and then just progress using the sidekick rules um, and, and to see what kind of, you know, that might be a little closer to, to older D&D gaming where you had simpler characters, not not the same thing. You've still got the the added complexity of 5e action economy and, and, and things like that, but it might make for a different style of game to have a little more, you know, a simpler st- um, way of running your, your player characters. Um, yeah, those are really interesting rules. I like them a lot. It's, it's one of the, you know, things that I hope other systems will pick up on and do in their own fashion. Hey, BJ, me again. Uh, that was a really interesting angle you went on for memory, talking about what memories drive your character. That was good. I came up with nothing, so congratulations. I tend to play kind of, you know, angsty, sad backstory characters. Uh, I Leon Farmer, uh, Paladin I played recently, who died a horrific death, he was he was an aspirational hero. He went out to adventure and to enact justice and was just an all-around good guy, but that's atypical for me. And I don't know why, man. I've you know, I've always been a fan of the anti-hero. I guess yeah, that's my Gen X coming through. I don't know. Peace out. Hey Joe, I feel you on the uh, the the Gen X. <laughs> We're kind of angsty and cynical by nature so uh and, and a lot of our heroes i mean you know I'm trying to think of the most the, the the biggest hero maybe we grew up with in fiction luke skywalker i mean you know we had our superheroes of course they were created decades before before we came you know in, if you grew up in the 80s you know most of the major superheroes had already been established but like, like luke skywalker you know, he had kind of a tragic backstory he um, wasn't necessarily a, a dark character. I mean, he, he became a dark character and, you know, the pull of the dark side, but but he was he was initially a very hopeful, optimistic character who just had to kind of grow up and understand the way the, <laughs> the galaxy and the universe really work, and then he, he ultimately proved himself a hero. But, yeah, you know, Batman, I, th- I, think, I think when I was a little, little kid, Superman would have been the most identifiable superhero, but, you know, by the mid-'80s, Batman was the biggest thing going in terms of superheroes. Um, so yeah, maybe, maybe that's why we, we gravitate to that. <laughs> that stuff just, just, you know, either because of the heroes we were presented with or the, but I say that and we've been talking about masters of the universe for nearly a month now. And he man was always a bright optimistic hero, <laughs> at least back in the eighties. Um, so yeah, but yeah, I think, I think it's just, it's easier that's the path of least resistance. It's easier to make a conceive of a hero that's going to go out and risk their life instead of staying home when there's either no home to stay at or there's some something they're running away from or something they're searching for that they've never had, um, which are excellent ways to create motivations for characters in addition to thinking about what memories drive them, although I guess those two things are tied together. So thanks for the call. And now we got a little more from Jason along the same topic. 
as far as playing those heroic characters who do the good thing, you, you, you know, the, the Superman way, the Captain America way, your, you know, peace, justice in the American way kind of thing. Um, I, it depends. I mean, to me, that's what a paladin does. Cause to me, a paladin's lawful good. So he's going to be that, you, you, you know, by the book, but, but heroic kind of guy. I mean, obviously we, we hear a lot about paladins and how they slaughter baby orcs and villages and things like that. But I definitely think you could play a paladin as Dudley Do-Right or Superman, you know, with, without a big problem. I, I don't think that would be a, a, a big issue. I, I think part of it's the genre, though. I think if we played superheroes or you played a different genre, it'd be easier to do. And maybe people say 5e's, you know, superhero game anyway. Um, but I think the idea of fantasy and people, and especially kids want to be, well, not kids maybe, but you see some players want to be loners and they want to be Wolverine or Deadpool or whatever, right? The Sorry, folks, I'm bringing in comic book references. Sorry to your listeners. I know you know who those characters are. But we think of Conan, we, we think of all the, your characters related to these stories. How many characters in the, in the base literature are out there doing good for good sake? They're out there. I'm not saying they don't exist, but I, I don't think they're the majority. So I, I think it just depends on your group of players and what kind of game you're playing. If, if you're playing, and I don't know if you're playing a more grounded game, how realistic that is to do. I mean, don't get me wrong. If it's a realistic game, you could definitely do it. The problem is you could definitely, a character could start off idealistic, right? I'm going to save the world. I'm going to go out and get fame and power or not even fame and power, but you, you know what I mean? They could start off idealistic, but I think played right, most of those characters, 90% of them or 95% of them would slowly become jaded how many, well, it's, right? So look at um, Batman v, not Batman v Superman, Dawn of Justice, which, oh yeah, it's Batman v Superman, Dawn of Justice. There's that quote in there from Alfred talking to Batman, or Bat, maybe it's Batman talking to Alfred, but talk about, you know, how, you know, look at our sidekicks, look at all the other heroes, how many stayed true. I, I know I'm butchering that line. Hold on, I'll look it up and call you back. There you go. How you like my Ben Affleck impersonation? That was a pretty good Ben Affleck impersonation, Jason, but I'm still waiting to hear your Nicolas Cage. <laughs> All right. Yeah, that, that's a good point. And um, I think that is what paladins were for initially, of course, in, in, in the last couple of editions of D&D, at least. They've sort of given us more types of paladins and given them more broadly... Um, they don't have to be the super what knight in shining armor. Um, I will maintain they're still expected to be rather heroic in nature. People will argue that because they've removed alignment restrictions from 5th edition paladins, you can have an evil paladin. I would argue that if you have the reading comprehension of a 4th grader, you can tell that pretty much all, except for maybe one or two of the paladin builds, are intended to be good heroic characters, or at the very least neutral characters who have a feeling of there's something important worth fighting for in terms of justice or or the common good. 
um, although that might that might be good depending on your definition of good. But um, <laughs> that's a whole other topic on fifth edition D and D, which I think I think it's nice to have the pal is yes, break the paladin out and say you can have paladins who fight for a cause or an ideal that don't lock them into that lawful good white knight uh, archetype. But the original paladin, yes, and I think a lot of heroes draw on that. Um, and that's kind of the neat thing about paladins, however you play them, is, you know, you hope that they they get challenged to, to violate their convictions and you see whether they can stay true to, what, to who they are or not. That's the challenge of playing a paladin, which originally that was the, the trade-off. You, you got all these special abilities. I mean, a paladin was far more powerful than a lot of other characters by all their special benefits, but but they were locked into having to play that lawful good alignment and do it in a way that still worked for the game while not violating their code, but associating sometimes with people who may not have the same beliefs or the same convictions. It, it was a real role-playing challenge. Um, so, yeah. The thing I think of when you mentioned Paladins, and since we're talking about Batman, is uh, Solomon Kane, who is... I don't know if he's in Gary's Appendix in, but he was one of Robert Howard's characters, and I think he, he belongs in the foundational literature for D&D, even though he was portrayed more in the, uh, you know, as, as a character during the, the Age of Sail, the Elizabethan era, and not necessarily um, medieval, or, or ancient or medieval uh, adventures. But, you know, Solomon Cain is kind of a grim, sour, stern figure, but he's still a, I think you can make the argument he's a paladin. He's he's fighting a holy war against evil and wickedness, um, protecting the innocent. Um, he's just not very nice about it. <laughs> and people, I've heard people say the same thing. Batman, Batman is in his own regard kind of. You can argue Batman is lawful good. That doesn't mean he's lawful nice, right? <laughs> um, and then I kind I mentioned Luke Skywalker. You know, starting off as a hopeful, optimistic hero, then having to deal with the the pressures of becoming jaded, the temptations of the dark side, and then ultimately choosing the light over the dark, and then, oh, and then Rand Johnson had a different idea. I think it would be an interesting story to see how Luke goes to become jaded. I think they just rushed it, rushed it in in uh, the sequel trilogy, and it wasn't very satisfactory. If you're going to do that, at least give us a compelling story as to how it happened. Um, but I'm off on a tangent there. Um, but Jason's got some more to say. Okay. I do have one character that's pretty heroic and acts out of, um, you, you know, the goodness of his heart and w- without hesitation to help other people. But that is in East Texas University, the Savage World setting that Carl's running for us. Basically, Scooby-Doo meets Animal House. And my character is a military vet, but deep down... You know, he's a real, he's a good guy, even though he's a, a frat boy and makes jokes and drinks and all. When it comes down to it, if somebody's in trouble, he's going to help. So in our last adventure, which was actually the first session, there is a gymnasium that was kind of set up with these magic glyphs that was going to explode into a fireball and basically fry a bunch of people's mystic arson. And the guy that we are pretty positive set this up was a school security guard. Anyhow, we had pretty much pegged the security guard as a bad guy. And my character had been fighting with a security guard and pretty much got control over him. And the other characters were taking care of the glyphs, so the 
the danger was pretty much past as far as we were concerned. And all of a sudden, this giant chupacabra appears, and it comes over, knocks me out of the way, grabs this guy, this security guard, I'm pretty sure is a bad guy, and starts climbing up the wall, hauling him up towards the skylight. And he's whining like a, like a little kid the whole time. So obviously, his fate wasn't going to be good. Well, I don't, you, even if somebody's a bad guy, you can't leave him to a fate like that. You know, it's just like where you see the superhero cartoons and movies where, you know, somebody's a vile bad guy, killed all these people, but now they're about to fall off the building and the hero still goes to try to save them. Well, that's what I did here. My character run up, grabbed the guy's legs, pulled, pulled him and the chupacabra off the wall trying to save him. But unfortunately, my character is no match for the chupacabra who took me out of action and still absconded with this guy who no doubt had a horrible fate. So, you know, he wasn't successful in his heroics, which I think is okay, and I think that's going to bother him, and that may come up in future sessions, that failure to save that guy. But at the same time, he may not lose too much sleep over it. I mean, he's a war vet. He'd been overseas. He's seen buddies die, you know, had to kill people overseas. So, I don't know. I'm not sure exactly how I'm going to play it yet, but I think there's definitely some regret in some of that, you know, oh, nobody should ever suffer a fate like that, you know, getting eaten by a chupacabra. So we'll, we'll see how that goes. But but so I guess that's my character that I'm playing that is kind of in his core goody two-shoes, even though he is a frat boy and drinks and makes fart jokes. Uh, that's a good example, Jason. I, th- I think that's a well-designed character at his heart. He's heroic. He's going to regret his failures for not doing more when, when you know, even though he tried his best and, and, and just fell short. I think that's a, that's a wonderful uh, example of a, of a heroic character with a good core. Um, you know, when I was talking about here, you mentioned veterans, and I forgot to mention this in the previous episode. I was trying to think of characters to talk about, and one I completely forgot to mention that I always think is a very cool character is Tom Hanks's character in Saving Private Ryan. You know, throughout most of the movie, he's just this perfect army officer. And then the guys even kind of make jokes about, you know, he didn't have a mother. Is he even, you know, kind of losing, is he even really human or did the army just kind of assemble him? He just, he's read, he knows the field manual back and forth. He always has the right decision. He's unflappable. You think this guy's like the perfect soldier. And then you find out he's just a history teacher from the Midwest. (laughs) They finally, they finally start sharing more about who they are. Um, which kind of speaks to, I think, that the generation that fought in World War II, that was just, they were just ordinary people who rose to the challenge of, of the day and was like, you know, shit's got to get done, so we're going to get shit done. I, I, uh, <laughs> sometimes I worry we're losing that. <laughs> but, um, yeah, it's, I think that's a good character you've got there. Um, I, I'm looking to hear more of the session recaps as you and Carl talk about how those sessions go on your own podcasts. Okay, let's talk about uh, today's topic, which is translate. Um, when I when I saw this prompt, what I thought of is, is really a big part of the DM's job is just to translate for the player what their character is experiencing. It's not to to control the character or to take away player agency or anything like that, but the DM is the one who has created the scenario and has to a lot of ways adjudicate what a character sees, what they hear, uh, even what they might smell or taste or feel. Um, 
you are the eyes, the ears, and the other senses of the character. So if you don't, if you drop the ball on that, you've given the player invalid information for them to make a decision on, if that makes sense. So, so that's, a, I think, something that's very important as a GM to, to kind of be mindful of. If your characters, or if your players seem to be doing things that, that are bad decisions, it could be that they're not paying attention, but, but, but it may also be that they're operating, they didn't understand what you said. So I think it's always important as a GM to cl- check for clarity, maybe describe something and then ask players what, you know, what they think or, you know, uh, do a little probing before you demand an immediate action just to make sure they understood what you told them. You know, check for understanding because you don't want to wind up in that situation where, you know, a player has a frustrating moment and you say, and then you say, you know, whatever you, well, then this happens. They're like, well, how did that happen? And you start explaining A leads to B leads to C. And they're like, well, that's not what I understood you when you described A, that first part of it. That's not what I understood you to be saying. I didn't didn't realize that's what you were talking about. So we have to be clear in our communications because we are translating the lived experience of the character into a verbal description for the player who then has to decide what that character is going to do next. Um, so it's really important that we're translators of, of, of that and that we don't, um, you know, you, you, you can put the, the bait out there and the player might not take it. So you don't want to railroad them. You don't, like I said, you don't want to remove player agency. But you do want to uh, to make sure that, that you understand the player's character and their role in the campaign setting and, and their abilities and their capabilities. I think it goes back to a discussion that made the rounds a while back about what happens when a player forgets an NPC's name or a small detail. You know, It may be something that you talked about for two minutes a month ago. Or longer, and is it fair to ask a player to, to remember that? Um, you know, even sometimes players who take good notes overlook details, or they miss a context, or, or you know, they don't, they don't write everything down, and may misunderstand what what's irrelevant and what's what's important sometimes as they're writing those notes down. So, you know, do you punish a player for missing a detail, or do you remind them? You remember your character saw something similar to this, or they heard somebody say this. Uh, I think it's okay to do that sometimes. I don't think again. I don't think you want to just lead players around by the nose. Um, you don't want to, you you don't want to overdo it and just handhold them all the way through things. But you know, if you see that a player is missing on information, it's obvious that their character would know. I even do that proactively. Um, if there's some clue or some bit of information that, that is necessary, I don't want to put that behind a a die roll where they may fail. I I might just say. You know, the smartest character or the character with the appropriate skill set or the character of the appropriate class or background would just know something. Hey, your character, you know, before you went on an adventure, you were a farmer. Well, you would know this about, you know, maybe there's something to do with plants or farming or, 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 or domestic animals. You know, a wizard who is kind of a scholar might just know a bit of lore that no one else knows. And it, you just kind of plant that, and it, it, it also gives those characters... You know, they spend some time thinking about what class they want to play, uh, where they put their their resources in terms of the skills they pick, what what background they choose, what story they write for themselves. And if they put the effort into doing that, it's kind of nice to reward it by letting them stand out, even if it's not a huge deal, just to say, of all the people in this party, this person would be the one who has the background, the knowledge, or the expertise 
to have that aha moment that they can they can then act on. Uh, so again, you're not you know how they act on it is up to them. I don't think again I don't think you're undermining the pl- the player's autonomy or agency in doing that. But yeah, so that's what I think of in translate. It's it's important to uh, to remember that the DM or the GM is translating for the player what it is their character sees, hears, knows, understands automatically about the world around them. And if you bumble that, players have to make uh, decisions with, with incomplete information, and nobody likes doing that. Uh, you kind of feel like a player can kind of feel like you've kind of screwed them over as a GM if you if you do that. And you can always say, "Oh man, I'm sorry, I made a mistake. Let's let's rewind and <laughs> and and go through it and 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 fix that if we can." But um, uh, yeah, just just be mindful of that. So, all right. Well, those are my thoughts on translate and translation. Um, you know, I had one other brief thought on translation and that's just more languages that, that's kind of the natural place to go I think we've gotten to a point you know I, I'm not sure how Pathfinder is doing this right now but but I know I know in, in the current edition of Dungeons and Dragons everything speaks common everyone speaks common um, and it, in one way it's, it's, an, it's a relief to just not have to worry about it if you don't want if you just want to hand wave hey everybody can talk to each other so we can just get through Every time we encounter a monster, can we talk to it? That can get tedious. So, so I, on one hand, I do like that. On the other hand, it's taken. You know, why would you take extra languages? There are rules for how you acquire extra languages, and, and sometimes there are options to take a language. Or so, why would you do extra languages if everybody speaks common and there's a magical solution to read any kind of writing you encounter that you aren't already literate in? So. Um, I think it's more fun when there are languages no one understands, and you have to work a little bit to uh, to translate and to, and to figure out what's going on. So, um, I think if I restart a D and D five E campaign from, from scratch, I may put that element back in there. Um, I've got a I kind of got a short list of house rules I'm holding on for for the next time I get to start fresh with with fifth edition D and D because I I do enjoy it, but I think there are some some old school concepts you could put in there that won't break the game or, or, or change it too much that might make it a little more interesting. That might be a topic for a future episode. All right, now I really am going to sign off. I'll be back tomorrow. And that's it for this episode of The Arcane Alienist. I want to thank Dave Bone for the cover art that I use for the episodes. Check out ironseer.com. And the music is... Come and Get It by Scott Holmes Music. Uh, Thank you for listening. Uh, Give me a call sometime through the Anchor app or at the Anchor website, and I'll be back in the future with another episode.